So happy Father's Day. Um, th- my sister Katie and uh, her husband Austin just had their baby this last week. So this morning I texted Austin and I said, uh, welcome to the club. Happy Father's Day. And he responded just moments ago and said, thank you. Out of curiosity is the um, slogan of this club. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. <laughs> I sent him a message back that says, you know that song, We've Only Just Begun, because it's only just begun. Anyway, okay, so for this week, as we're in this series of Being Like Jesus, this week we're talking about evangelism. Next week is this right here, that act of unity. I told you that this was coming, um, and so this is what I want you to think about, the unity of believers and how much Jesus put an emphasis, how much he begged his followers to be unified in the message that we're sharing with the world for a reason. I want us to think about this over the course of the next week as you read these passages. When you are dealing with other believers, meaning other people of other denominations who profess Jesus, who have differences with us in doctrine and in other things, when we think about collaborating and working with those people, are we striving to find points of agreement Or are we striving to say, well, you're different than me. You're different than me. I'm going to hold you at a distance because of this, because of that. I want you to think about that as you read these two passages, particularly Jesus' teaching in Mark 9, but also Psalm 133. Okay, And we'll dig into this topic of unity and the unity of believers, all of that next week. All right, so this last week, uh, Bristol, uh, our middle daughter, has had some health problems towards the end of the year. And so we've taken her, tried to get figured out what's going on. And so they ran some tests, and they came back, and they said, well, her levels with such and such weren't exactly what they need to be, so we want to run further tests, and these numbers weren't exactly where we want them to be. And any of you that have had tests, you know that. There's like a range. There's all of these numbers and ranges and counts, uh, whether it's uh, glucose, well, your glucose numbers are too high, that can be a sign of what? Diabetes, good. And if your white blood cell count is going through the roof, that can be a sign of cancer, okay, and then uh, your savings, uh, that's not health related, I mean it can be, um, but your, your savings account, you know there's this number that when you're first out of college and you get your job and you sit down with a financial planner, they say, okay, you need to save this amount of money, and if you save this amount of money from every paycheck, here's where you will be when you get to retirement. This is the range that you'll be in. Some of you have done this I don't even know how you say it. Is it Enneagram or something like that? Okay, it's like a personality test, and you find these numbers, and this is who you are and what you are. And some people say that this was some Christian mystic that came up with it. Other people say it was Satan that came up with it. I don't know where you are on that. I don't know anything about the Enneagram. But all of these numbers, and you find this everywhere. What is the point of all of this? Every time you hear, well, these, this number is where you need to get. The point of all of these numbers, whether it's measuring your glucose or your personality or your savings account, all of this is about this. If you get within these numbers or you hit this number, you're going to live a better and a fuller and a longer and a healthier and a more influential life. If you aren't zoning in right here on this number, then you're not going to be as healthy as what you could be. All right, so I'm thinking about that this week because of Bristol and everything. Obviously, some of those things are legitimate, right? You know that if your iron drops too low, that isn't going to be good for you, so you want to keep those numbers up. Others of them are simply marketing gimmicks, and we go through these phases, and everybody's all about this for a short period of time, and then all that will fade away after the people that came up with it get really rich, and then somebody will come up with something else. But what about, uh, this is what I was thinking about this week, as I'm trying to figure out how much should I be involved with the unbelieving world? 
Why isn't there a number that could measure for us the number of unbelievers in my life times the time that I invest in them times the depth of that relationship that I have with them? In other words, I wish that scripture gave to me this. I wish it told me how many unbelievers should I be in contact with? And then at what point does it become a little concerning all these people that I'm surrounding myself with who are unbelievers and that's actually a sign of where I am. Why isn't there a number for that and how regularly should I be in contact with these people? And not only in contact, but how deep should my relationship be with unbelievers? I need to understand that. How invested should I become in people who are not of the faith? I understand I'm supposed to win them, and so therefore I need to be involved in their lives, but how deep? Because remember what we're taught as Christians. Paul writes this to the Corinthians. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and the devil? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of God. So God dwells in us, and therefore we should not be in concert with those who are engaged in idolatry, because God lives inside of us. So I understand this teaching, and yet at the same time, I've got this teaching here telling me not to be yoked with unbelievers, and what fellowship can I have with darkness if I've got the light living in me, and yet Jesus tells me to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father. How in the world am I supposed to make disciples of all nations if I don't engage and, and have some form of relationship with the unbelieving world? You cannot do this. And I understand that part of this commission has to do with discipleship. After they become believers, then you disciple them and teach them to obey. But how do you win the nations if you are not inter interested and involved in worldly people's lives and their affairs? So how much? How much, what's my range? What is my number that I should be looking for? What is the perfect balance of my engagement with ungodly people that will still be faithful to Paul's warnings against being unequally yoked? Against his warning uh, that he gives in another place about how um, bad company corrupts good character? All right, so I don't want to keep bad company because that'll corrupt. And then you got Jesus' teaching down here. You remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's praying and what does he pray to the Father? We'll kind of hit on this uh, next week a little bit too. But he prays, Father, I don't want you to take my disciples out of the world. I don't want them out of the world. They're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. But just like you sent me into the world on a mission, I am sending them into the world. So we have this phrase that we are uh, not of, but we're in the world. We're in, but not of the world. And we say that all the time. Can I tell you, I was thinking about this. We spend a lot of time about talking how we're not of the world. I mean, a lot of my sermons are about that, that the world does things this way, and this is the way they'll behave, and then there's us over here. We are not of the world. Okay, we, we talk about that a lot, and the distinctions are real, they are important. There's no question about that, I'm not questioning that, but I actually think because of that, it's easier for us to understand, maybe not obey, but it's easier for us to understand what it means to be not of the world. I get it. I'm not supposed to go to the same places. I'm not hanging out in the same places. I'm not using the same language. I understand. Now, I may not always obey that. I may not be great at obeying not of, but I can understand what it means. But what about that? What, am I, what does that mean, be in the world? And, and still at the same time obey all of these other things. How much am I to be in the world? And more significantly, how should I do it? I don't know how I should do it. And what should I do? 
That's a big question for me. Maybe not for you, but here are the two problems that I see. The more I have grown in Christ, the deeper my relationship with him has become, and the $64 million word for it is sanctification, the more sanctified I become in my relationship with Christ, the less I have in common with the world. I don't, I was talking with somebody uh, last night at an event. I, I, we were talking and saying, you know, I, I don't relate well to the world because I don't live that way. And so I don't have much in common. I can't speak their language. I struggle in that regard. I don't know what to say or what to do around worldly people. That's problem number one. And then problem number two is I'm really content in my faith. I'm, I'm satisfied. I'm happy. I love growing in the faith. But just like I'm satisfied in my faith, these people who are ungodly seem to be very satisfied in their faith and what they're doing. So it's unlikely I'm going to change. So doesn't it stand to reason it's really unlikely they're going to change? And we say that. Maybe we don't say it verbally, but we think it. I mean, what are the odds that so-and-so is really going to convert? You see the way that they live their life, and they seem to be overly happy with it. So we doubt that there's much of a chance that our evangelism is going to make any difference. They know what Christianity is. They're not interested. So I don't think me talking about Jesus is going to help anything. All right, so let's start with number one. What do we do and what do we say? As we are followers of Christ, how do we do this? Do you remember gospel tracts? Some of you who are older will remember what a gospel tract is. Some of you who are younger, maybe, depending on where you grew up in your denomination, you'll know what a gospel tract is. And there are some folks in some denominations that still wholeheartedly believe that that is the best form of evangelism. A gospel tract is like, I'll show you what it is here in a minute. And I want to make sure you understand, I don't think there's anything wrong with a gospel tract. Handing somebody a gospel tract that explains the whole story of how we jacked all this up and how you can come to salvation, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. At Howard County 4-H Fair, I remember walking through the big top and people are chucking those things at me. You would pass certain places and they would put the pamphlets at you and they had those little doors that you look in. Do you know what you, where you'll be when you look like this? And you open it up, it's a dead body. Well, it's not a dead body, it's a um, casket. That'd be really alarming. Like, oh my. Anyway, so like, I understand that there's that, that form. There's nothing wrong with handing out gospel tracts. I get that. In case you don't know, here's what a tract would be. You would hand someone a pamphlet and it would walk them through these steps. And this is what it would say. That God created all of us for glory. And then it would have the scripture reference of Isaiah 43 that would demonstrate that. And every human being should live for God's glory. And it would have the scripture reference that validated that. And all of us as human beings have failed to live to glorify God as we should. And it would have the scripture reference to validate that. All of us then are worthy of God's just condemnation. And it would have the scripture reference to validate that. And God sent Jesus to solve that problem with the scripture reference to validate that. And then redemption, so we understand you can live forever if you repent and trust in that Jesus. Now, it wouldn't all be on one page. They would have words and explain each of these points. But that's a gospel tract. Okay, I don't have any problem with this because it's all true. But when you talk about evangelizing a lost world, I see one glaring problem with this being your approach. For where we are in America in 2022, I'm going to highlight it on the screen and see if you pick up on what it is. The problem with handing someone something like this and having that count for your evangelism is that right there. Okay, what am I saying? I obviously don't have a problem with the scriptures. I believe the scriptures. I trust the scriptures. Why do I see that this is going to be largely ineffective with many? Anyone? They, yes, 
They don't believe the scriptures. I do, so that's compelling. But they don't. This is the problem right here. A record few number of Americans, according to Gallup, believe that the Bible is the literal word of God. So I hand them a tract saying, you ought to live according to what the Bible says. Well, why should I live that way? Well, the Bible says that you should. Well, they don't believe the Bible in the first place. It's circular reasoning. Why should I live this way? The Bible says so. Well, how can I know I can trust the Bible? Because the Bible says it's of God. That's not going to sell people who are unbelievers. It's a good validation for those of us who are to understand. But as a form of evangelism, you're not operating with people that trust those scriptures. So how in the world can we reach those people? What does scripture tell us to do? How, do we, how does Jesus reach people that obviously didn't believe in him? Well, I want to start right here. There's some points that I see in the scriptures. Number one, start praying for the unbelievers in your life. And I'm highlighting in your life. Remember when we talked about prayer and I said that I've developed this uh, circular thing, the concentric circles. I start off praying for my, my own soul and, and my relationship with Christ. And then I move out to Jenny and our marriage. And then I move out to my immediate family and then my church family. And that's how I organize my prayers. Well, the last circle in that was the unbelieving world, the lost. Okay, let's specify what we're talking about. Spend less time lamenting the lost of the world and more time praying the names of the people in your life that you know who are lost. Pray for them specifically. You know lost people. Pray for them, lift them up, write their names down and pray for them often and then start targeting them. Um, when I say target, I wanna make sure we understand, okay? <laughs> There is, I feel it incumbent upon me to show this to you. I know that I've shown this before. Uh, you really, we, I, I could have just summed up the entire sermon with this clip of what is the single greatest method of evangelism that has ever been done by any human being on earth. This minister has it down pat. Could we please roll this, Dave? There was a young man in, in Calvary. Uh, his name was Ben. And I was running a youth group. I was there for a few years. And um, he was just, he was a nice kid, but he was one of those kids that was always just, he's a real smart aleck. He was, just, was, was a bright kid, which didn't help things, right? Made him more dangerous. And we were outside one day, youth group, and uh, he was just, just trying to push my buttons. And he was just, you know, kind of not taking the Lord serious. And I walked over to him, and I went, bam! I punched him in the chest as hard as I, I crumpled the kid. I just crumpled him. And I said, I leaned over and I said, Ben, when are you going to stop playing games with God? I led that man to the Lord right there. There's times that that might be needed. <laughs> Assault and battery for the Lord. That's what that is. So let's just close in prayer. All right, listen. When I say target a couple people, I'm not talking about Ben. Hey, I don't mean crumple anybody in the name of Jesus. That's not really what we're looking for. Target a couple of them that you can be friends with. You know you're praying for these unbelieving people. You have the opportunity to befriend some of them. Target a couple of them for friendship. Bring them into your circle. Even if you don't feel like you have a lot in common, make that an objective that you have. Number three, the workplace is a great opportunity for this. You do understand that the workplace is where you are going to spend the most time with unbelievers. It's where I spend the most time with unbelievers. I don't mean my job here, by the way. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> 
Yeah, Stokes isn't actually in Israel. He's in Vegas right now. That's where your, <laughs> that's where your tithe's going. Anyway, no, uh, but my job at the school, there's unbelievers that I work with, and certainly among the student body, there's, there's unbelievers there. And those of you that are in the workplace out there, that's where you're going to be surrounded by the most unbelievers. You collaborate with them. You're working towards a common goal in a place of business, so you have a common relationship. Build around that. Take advantage of that opportunity. Some of you wonder, man, is this what God has for me to spend my whole life in this factory? Okay, yes, God has provided you that opportunity to do this right here. It's not about making widgets. It's about making disciples of Jesus, and that's why you've been placed there. Don't let your faith be a wedge in, in, the, in the business world. What do I mean by that? You know how many Christians love being known as the Christian of the office? And the way that they're known as the Christian of the office is nobody feels comfortable saying those jokes around them. Nobody feels comfortable when they come around because the Christian is set aside and is different. And it becomes a wedge that people don't feel comfortable about. No, I want, I think we should want to be, our faith to be seen as something admirable. Not as something that's a wedge, but something that, man, that's really neat what they have in their life. What do I mean by that? They think, the world thinks that being a Christian makes you judgmental. Well, don't fulfill that prophecy of theirs. Instead, let them see that your faith makes you exceptionally kind. That you have an interest in them and their life. That you're concerned about them. That you love them. That's what Christianity does to a person's heart. It doesn't make them judgmental. So in the workplace where you're surrounded by unbelievers, let that be the image that they see of Jesus. Fourthly, be inoffensive in every way except for the cross. If someone's going to be offended that you proclaim that you were lost and bound for hell, but Jesus saved you and redeemed you from that, if they're going to be offended by that, you can't help that. But in every other way, be as inoffensive as possible, which means deal with your own prejudice. Now, we always think of the word prejudice in racial terms, and maybe, maybe that is an issue, but we have prejudices against all kinds of people because of the way that we were raised and the way that we were born. We have prejudice against people who talk a certain way. We have prejudice against people who have certain kinds of attitudes. We have prejudice against people that do certain things on the weekend, and therefore we hold them at an arm's distance. Deal with that prejudice and be kind to them. Be sensitive to the culture that you're in and listen to other people. In other words, act like Jesus did. That's what we're to do when we're in the workplace. Now, we don't compromise with the world, but we relinquish. This is what's amazing. When I read scripture and I see what Paul does to win lost people, he relinquishes his rights and his desires, the things that he wants, in order to reach everybody. But sometimes we become so obsessed about what is our right. It is my right not to be offended by you and your actions in this way. We become so obsessed with that, we drive that wedge. And we'll have no influence over those people at all. What do I mean by this? Look at what Paul writes. This passage is amazing when you think about evangelism. This is in 1 Corinthians 9. Though I am free and belong to no one, I am free. I have made myself a slave to everyone. I'm relinquishing my freedom and making myself a slave for what purpose? To win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. I did things their way so that I could be in their culture and they would listen to me. I developed that relationship. To those under the law, I became like one under the law so as to win those under the law. 
To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win them. I have become all things to all people. I'm not worried about my rights. I'm not worried about what I think I'm entitled to and what I deserve. I'm worried about emptying myself of self, becoming like them, understanding where they're coming from, and then reaching them for Christ so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I might share in its blessings. When I share the gospel of Christ, I am blessed in return. I don't have to have my rights in order to do that. Let me give you, an, I did not even see that this was going to play out this way. But as I'm preparing this message, it hit me. That's exactly what happened to me two weeks ago. Okay, two weeks ago, Jenny and I had taken a trip, and we were flying back on separate planes. Don't ask. The reason it happened was largely because I'm an idiot that doesn't know how to book flights. But anyway, so we're on two separate planes. So I get on my plane, and I sit there next to the window, and the lady who's on the aisle is there. She's already dumped her yogurt. It reeks. It's awful. I'm going to have to deal with that the whole way home. But there's that middle seat, and I'm waiting. And waiting, and eventually this lady comes down the row, uh, the, the aisle, and she puts her carry-on bag up in the little place, and she flops down in the seat next to me, and she's adjusting everything. And I notice that I, she may have been the only one, there may have been a couple on the plane, she had a mask on, and then another mask over the top of it. So she was double masking her face, okay? And she's sitting next to me. Nobody else around us is wearing a mask. And she's sitting there, and she's adjusting everything. And I knew what I was going to do on that flight. This. I was going to get on my laptop and I was going to work on a sermon. That's what I was going to do on the flight. I've also been on enough air, air flights now. Of course, it's an air flight. Um, you don't, <laughs> I don't know what's happening. All right, so I've been on enough plane trips that I know even if you don't want to, you're not being snoopy, but you notice what the person next to you is doing. If they're watching something and it's out in front, you're going to turn and see it. And this, So she's going to see that I'm working on a sermon. She's going to see me typing the name of Jesus. Okay, this is honestly not like me because I don't like masks. But I turned and looked at this woman. I tapped her on the shoulder and I said, ma'am, I have a mask in my bag and I'm happy to wear it if it makes you more comfortable. And she said, what? And I said, I have a mask in my bag and if it would make you more comfortable, I'll wear it. And she said, no, I'm okay. But nobody has ever asked me that before. I said, oh. We go on about our business, maybe said one or two other things. There was a lady in front that had a cat in a box. Anyway, so we talked about that a minute, and I thought maybe I should put on the mask so I don't start. But anyway, but I, I thought about this, okay? As we go on this flight, she gets out her stuff. This woman was a professor, at least I assume, because she had a prospectus. She was editing somebody's doctoral dissertation, Okay. When we landed in Indianapolis, she got out her phone like everybody does, and she gets on her Facebook groups. This makes me sound like I'm really like a stalker, but the Facebook group that she was on was parents of trans kids, okay? We had come from California. She was obviously either an ally, a supporter, or she herself had a transgender child. Now, what does that tell me? That tells me in the world that we're living in, she undoubtedly had a perspective of who and what Christians are. And I really, really hope and pray that my turning and asking her that question shattered what she believed she knew about followers of Jesus. A simple act of kindness. I don't have to wear a mask. I don't like wearing a mask. But by doing that, becoming all things to all people, becoming a mask wearer, 
maybe I, I planted a seed that will later be used. And the funny thing is, I didn't even know that that was happening until I started preparing this message, and it hit me. That's it. That's what we're supposed to be doing. All right, so that's number one. Now, move on to number two. We come from two completely different kingdoms. And Jesus talks about this. Uh, when he talks about the narrow path and the wide path, and everybody's walking this wide path, very few on the narrow path. Okay, I'm looking and thinking back about that woman. She and I are on two, apparently on two completely different paths about what we believe and what we value and all of that. And we think to ourselves, well, that woman is so far gone, what are the odds that she's ever going to want to change? She's very happy with her worldly faith. What are the odds that she will ever change? I had you read Genesis 12 this week. I want you to look at the first three verses of that. Genesis chapter 12. The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. Now listen to verse 3. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. What is he talking about? What is it when he says that all people on earth will be blessed through you, he's talking about Jesus. This is the beginning of the story of the coming of Jesus. Through your lineage, Abraham or Abram, I am going to bless all nations. This is the definition of God's good news. What is the term that we have for the good news? The gospel. You realize in Genesis chapter 12 is the start of the gospel story. And notice that that good news and that gospel is for all people. By the way, if you don't believe me, look at what Paul writes. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles, the non-Jews, by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. All people will be blessed through you. Now, you tell me. I'm, well, I'll tell you. There were people, people so different in that era... You can't find people more different than the various cultures that were living in the time of Abraham. And the people of Israel stood out and they were isolated. They had all these rules and it made them so different. Okay, I was talking to some people from this church this last week and we were commenting on this very reality. The increased secularization around us, it makes us feel like we stand out. We're in a group of friends, and we're the one that believes the way we do, and everybody else is there, and the group think is strong among them, and they, they validate one another, and we feel completely isolated. The good news is for all people, even those that make you feel isolated and alone. It's for all people. It is wrong of us to assume that all unbelieving people are faithful devotees to the spirit of the age. They're caught up in the spirit of the age, but they are people. They're people who have their own struggles. Listen, I read an article by John Piper this last week, and it is easy for us to sit there and look at the world and say, man, these people are so far gone. Look at them, and look at what they embrace. And that lady on the plane, look at what she's looking at and what she's validating and what she's supporting. You know what Piper pointed out? That's thinking about it in the general sense of the world. But among those people that are in that world, someone just got diagnosed with cancer. Somebody is struggling because their world has been turned upside down. Someone in that world that we're talking about just lost their child and they need answers. Somebody in that world that is so sure that they don't trust God, they don't even believe in God, someone just lost their career that they had wrapped their entire identity up in. 
Someone just had a dream about hell that they cannot shake. It terrified them, and it's all they can think about. Someone in that world just had a baby, and they're holding that baby, and they're thinking about all these worldly philosophies and the confusing morality, and they want to raise their child to understand right and wrong, and where do they turn for that kind of thing? Someone is alone in a hotel room, and they just happen to read the story of the prodigal son. Someone just spent their last night heaving their guts out into the toilet, and they're looking for something and a life that's more than just self-indulgence. This is empty to them. The drugs have gotten old. The bottle has run dry. Friends have let them down. Someone, for reasons they can't explain, was just overcome with guilt about the life that they're living. They were fine two days ago, but now they cannot shake the guilt that they are feeling. This is the reality of the world. People get saved, not cultures. People get saved. The culture may be lost, but the people in the culture are savable. The single parent at your kid's soccer game, you know that single parent that's standing there. They're not an activist for the worldly culture. They may be living a worldly life, but who is that person? It's a person that's consumed with a thousand worries every day. That's who that person is. They're increasingly disillusioned with the answers that they're not getting from a culture that enslaves them. And the New Testament, man, if you've never seen this, the New Testament shows a perfect picture of exactly what I'm talking about. The difference between looking at the culture and the world and looking at the people that make up that culture or that world. Paul writes about the sons of disobedience that they're surrounded by. I might use that phrase, looking at American culture, sons and daughters of disobedience. Look at them and all the things that they're doing. He tells how the God of this age was blinding the unbelievers. And I can say the same thing about our culture. We live in a culture where people are spiritually blind. He called it an evil age. We're certainly living in an evil age. Peter, look at what he writes about. His culture that surrounds them of sensuality and orgies and passions and drunkenness and idolatry. Is that not America 2022? Look, they are writing about their culture being the same way. It was lost. It was gone. The culture was entrenched in evil. The New Testament tells us that's what they're living in. And yet, what else does the New Testament tell us? This is amazing. In the midst of that, in the midst of all of that, there's this dude Zacchaeus that, for reasons he couldn't explain, was bizarrely pulled towards Jesus. He had to see him. He wanted to know what was going on with this guy. And there was this Ethiopian eunuch that just happened to open up and read Isaiah 53. And Philip just happened to be there at the right time. Say, hey, would you like somebody to explain that to you? There's a big body of water. What a coincidence. Glad this worked out this way. These events happen over and over so many. You got Joanna, who is the wife of Herod's household manager. Herod, the king, is not that interested in the Jesus movement. Not a big fan. And yet the person who's running his household, his wife... In, in that kind of a culture, anti-Jesus culture, becomes a follower. Cornelius is a Roman warrior, and he comes to Jesus. And Saul is out persecuting Christians and has an encounter with Christ. That's unlikely. And Lydia, very wealthy, very well-to-do, she becomes a follower. You've got a demon-possessed girl. You've got a Roman jailer. And then get this. This one amazes me. Paul writes to the Philippians these words. All God's people here send greetings, especially... Those who belong to Caesar's household. You know who Caesar is, right? The Roman God. He forces everybody to proclaim that he is God. And yet, there are people in his own household, while he's demanding that everyone in the nation proclaim him to be God, there are people in his household who are saying, he's not God, Jesus is Lord. In his own household, God saves people. 
That's the truth. And you see it in the New Testament. The age is evil. The culture is lost. But God saves people. No one is beyond reach. Not even the people in Caesar's household. Not even a woman who has a negative attitude about Christians and is consumed in worldly philosophy and the spirit of the age sitting next to me on a plane. God will loosen people's pride and he'll provoke discomfort in their conformity to the world every day. Are we ready for that? Are we standing ready? And you say, ah, I don't really like it. I get discouraged. They're going to say bad things. They don't agree with me. They snap back at me. I'm very uncomfortable. Okay, first of all, share what Jesus has done for you. Not what you think Jesus needs to do for them. Share what Christ has done for you, how he delivered you from those same struggles that they're dealing with. That's a great place to start. A testimony of who and what he is. And don't get discouraged if they don't accept it. Are you worse off than when you first began? I'll tell you, sometimes animosity and defensiveness, that is the first sign of a person coming under conviction. And you may never get to see the end result. Be faithful. Be faithful nonetheless. Look at what Peter, I had you read this. When it comes to evangelism, good Christian living, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. What is the assumption there? That the unbelieving world is going to accuse you of doing wrong. You haven't done wrong. But they're going to accuse you of it. They're going to accuse you of being a hater. They're going to accuse you of being a bigot. They're going to accuse you of having all of these terrible ideas and philosophies. And Peter goes on in the next chapter. Keep a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Okay, what is Peter getting at? He's saying it over and over. Over. Others are going to trash you. They're going to slander you. They're going to speak maliciously about you. And it will seem hopeless but those of us who act like Jesus will realize that when it comes to lost souls, it is never hopeless. Why? Your good deeds and your faithfulness and your love and your glorifying God in the face of hate, that may well be the catalyst for someone's eventual conversion. Why? Because God is still in the business of resurrection. He's still in the business of taking those who were dead in sin and bringing them back to life. He did it for me, and he did it for you. He can do it for them. Father God, I thank you for that promise. I thank you for that truth, that you are a God who saves, that you are a God that takes us. Whether we're in a good culture or a bad culture, we're still dead, dead in our transgressions. And in the midst of that, you raised us to new life in your son. We praise you for that, Father. And for those that are here that need to be resurrected to new life, I pray that conviction hits them from your Holy Spirit that they can't shake it. And for those that are out in the world that we know personally, Father, may we take an urgent interest in befriending them and reaching out to them and praying for them that they may come to know the same resurrection power that lives inside us. This is our prayer. We ask it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. You want that resurrection power. Now's the moment. Come forward, confess your sins, repent, be baptized. You want prayer to work with someone who in your life you know you need to reach. That's what roommate is for. Come forward if you have a decision. Go back there if you need prayer. Just do it. Don't wait. Would you come as we stand and as we sing?